Good morning. Hey, a few days ago, we posted a, uh, a video on the third temple. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? <clears throat> I had a few good comments, really, well, a bunch of good comments come in regarding that. And um, one concept that emerged in those comments is, is something I'd like to address today. And I'd like to go ahead and read Elaine's comment, uh, because I think it articulates this idea uh, quite well. Uh, Being that we are the temple of God, and Revelation describes New Jerusalem coming down, being adorned like a bride for her bridegroom, have you ever considered that the prophecies of a third temple could be referring to our own bodies, the body of the bride of Christ, the church, which is being built up to perfection by Christ himself? Uh, And the Antichrist will set himself within the temple, declaring himself to be God by entering the hearts of the people who claim to be Christians, and they worship him. We would uh, would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, again, thanks for articulating that. That is a um, uh, that that's a comment, an idea, a concept that has come up through a number of different comments. So I thought it'd be a good idea to speak to that today. Um, to start with, the Bible clearly does speak about um, the idea that believers are like living stones being built up to a holy habitation. That, as a matter of fact, if you want to look at First Peter chapter two, um, this uh, this is where Peter speaks to this idea, starting in verse. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Peter, uh, where Peter talks about us coming to him as to a living stone. In other words, coming to Christ as the living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it goes on to speak about the idea uh, where there's various quotes in the Old Testament about um, uh, the um, uh, laying a stone in Zion, uh, all of this uh, kind of thing that we uh, we see revolving around this idea. As a matter of fact, we were just talking about uh, this in our study last night as we're going through Zechariah on Wednesday nights. Um, so um, the Bible does clearly talk about the idea that believers are being built up to a holy house, you know, a, um, a place of worship for God in that. However, um, it is important to recognize the plain, straightforward sense in which the discussion of a coming third temple um, would um, would need to you know, be recognized in. It's um, uh, I'm, as you, as you know, my approach to uh, my hermeneutic or my interpretation of scripture, my approach to interpreting scripture, is to first take it at face value, and then if there is a reason uh, to take it as being um, spiritualized, symbolic, allegorical, metaphorical, whatever the case might be, uh, if there is a very clear requirement to see it that way. Uh, in other words, if the plain sense makes good sense, then I don't seek any other sense, you know. And so, that being said, when it comes to the discussion of the third temple, I think that the discussion about the coming third temple is as plain as any of the discussion that comes up about the destruction of the second temple, for example, just by way of the the plain way it's spoken of. Um, when Jesus in Matthew twenty four, he speaks of both the um, the existing second temple during his time, and he also speaks about the requirement for a third temple later on in that same discussion. Uh, matter of fact, if you want to turn to Matthew 24, I'll demonstrate what I mean. Um, as they're walking through the temple area, um, the disciples come up to show them the buildings of the temple. Again, they seem to be kind of impressed with this structure that was originally the temple built in the time of Haggai and Zechariah, you know, Joshua and Zerubbabel. And uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, this temple and the Jerusalem built during that time. Well, this temple built under the time of Haggai and Zechariah um, uh, is built upon by Herod the Great. And it now is this much more impressive structure than it was uh, when it was just the finished temple um, um, you know, prior to Herod's coming. 
And so this seems to be kind of an impressive structure. But Jesus says uh, to them, do you, do you not see all these things? Verse 2, assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, we see that that happens in 70 AD. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in literal terms. Hey, you're looking at this. Don't be too impressed. It's all coming down. Not one stone will be left upon another. And so um, that clearly is intended to be taken at face value, straightforwardly. You know, this is coming down. And it did in 70 AD. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, um, uh, in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem, and he weeps over the city and talks about uh, how their destruction was going to come upon them because they did not recognize this their day. Um, Luke 19, uh, 40 to 45. And so um, the, the fact that these things are spoken of plainly, and then, of course, when he goes on to describe later on in Matthew 24, he talks about, take heed that no one deceives you, right? Straightforward. The idea that there will be deceive, deceivers, even those claiming to be Christ and such. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There will be pestilences and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows. We don't take those things as being allegorical. We see them as straightforward. There's going to be wars. There's going to be deception. There's going to be famines and pestilence and all these kinds of things. Uh, he talks about people hating one another and all of that kind of thing. And then in verse 15, he goes on to say, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And of course, there's the, uh, the uh, inserted there, whoever reads, let him understand, meaning that, you know, we're reading this, we need to learn to understand this. And so, but in the midst of all this, it would seem a strange thing to all of a sudden shift to something that is intended to be taken as allegorical or symbolic, or spiritualize it in some way. The discussion all the way up to that point, and even after that point, and even the call to flee from Jerusalem, right? Uh, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Uh, let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. So there is this ongoing discussion and description of what's going to be happening at a particular point of time. And at the heart of that, in verse 15, we see that there will be this structure set up, an abomination of desolation, which Daniel speaks about toward the end of his own prophecy. Um, and, and Jesus points to it as a yet future event. Now, in our, uh, as a quick aside, in our previous discussions about when this takes place, we pointed out that it can't happen. It, it, it wasn't Antiochus Epiphanes in 165 BC because that happened, again, like 180 years before Jesus talks about this. So we know that Jesus is not referring back to that event, but he's looking forward to another one. We know it didn't happen in 70 AD because there was no going into the temple and establishing a structure here that's the abomination of desolation, all that kind of thing. There was destruction. Uh, the Jews uh, ultimately flee in the diaspora and all this kind of thing. But other elements that are central to this did not take place during that period of time. And so we are still looking for that to happen as Jesus described. And the fact that we are looking for it with some of the other descriptions surrounding it means that we should be taking all of those things as Jesus taught them so that we know what to look for. Um, Jesus uh, condemned the Pharisees because they could discern the signs of the weather, but they couldn't discern the signs of the times of his coming, his first coming. 
Um, and the reason they should have known those things is because the Bible spoke of those things. There were very clear indicators about the period of time that he would come. Uh, Daniel, again, predicts Jesus' exact day of his coming to present himself as Messiah. Um, and so, uh, again, these I just see as a more consistent approach to interpreting Scripture being to take it at face value first, unless there's clearly a reason to take it otherwise. Now, um, much more could be said about the idea of, of the literalness of the abomination of desolation, the idea that that would stand in a literal physical temple. Um, the the fact that Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, um, I know this is well-traveled territory for many, but one of the things I'm, I'm going through this uh, 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 for is because it's, uh, and, and please, I'm not implying that anyone who watched the video is, is just simplistically approaching this by finding a Bible verse or two and saying, therefore, it must mean all this. I'm not implying that's what's going on. But I, I do want to bolster the idea and reinforce the idea that our understanding of theology and eschatology is a part of, of, of our biblical studies, uh, a study of last things being part of our overall study of Scripture, is that it is part of a study of overall Scripture. In other words, there's a lot of things that speak to the period of time that we're talking about right now that leads up to a period of time known as the millennial period, where uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find much of anything else in Scripture that is spoken of more than the millennial period. You could argue that obviously the um, the fact that Jesus said the whole of Scripture speaks of him means he's the predominant thing that is spoken of on every page. But in terms of other topics beyond that, the millennial period is among the single most spoken of periods of time uh, in, in all of Scripture. And so the events that lead up to that period of time, um, you know, if we're to take the things about the millennium as, as they're described, uh, if we're to take things about Christ's first coming as they're predicted, um, then certainly when it comes to the events that are as plainly spoken of as the third temple uh, being built, the uh, the Antichrist physically as a human being coming in and, and dwelling in that place, a false prophet. Uh, again, we'll go to Revelation 13 in a moment, but let me go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 here for just a moment um, and, and read chapter 2. I, I usually start a little bit later just because we want to key in on maybe the focus of the Antichrist or something like that, but let me uh, put it in its fuller context here, looking at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, starting. Uh, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind uh, or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Uh, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first uh, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining. Um, and he goes on to describe the idea of the restrainer and the lawless one then coming and all that kind of thing. Now, it could it's not that you couldn't find a way to sort of see that as being um, really just uh, describing something that happens on a spiritual level. Um, it's not like you couldn't do that. But if you remember, uh, Paul is talking here about their very legitimate fear. Uh, well, I shouldn't say legitimate fear. We shouldn't fear, right? But the fact that they were really in fear um, about having arrived in the last days and still being here, like they thought Antichrist was on the scene. And Paul goes on to uh, tell them that, no, 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 some other things need to happen first before he's on the scene. 
There's nothing about the discussion itself that would lend you to believe uh, or lead you to believe that this is intended to be seen as a spiritual thing, as a spirit, uh, really not something happening in the physical realm, but just in the spiritual realm. Uh, Paul makes reference to the temple of God, which in their minds would have meant the temple. Now, when Paul wrote this, the temple was not destroyed yet. This is written around 64 AD, or no, actually, this is even written earlier. Second Thessalonians is written even earlier. And so the temple was still standing. This is well before 70 AD. And so the temple is still there. So in their minds, when Paul says the temple of God, they literally uh, would imagine the temple of God. And so there's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that he means something other than that. So now that doesn't mean that, again, it couldn't be pointing to something happening spiritually, but the text itself is not leading us to think that. And so if, if we are thinking that, it's not from this text. Now, what, uh, you know, just, I said we'd go to Revelation 13, so let's go there as well. And again, I, I apologize. I know for many of you, this is stuff that we've covered before and that you spend time in yourself. But I always like to be sensitive to the idea that there may be some um, that are that are watching that really haven't had the, got a chance to go through this yet. This is new for them. And I want to make sure that I don't just assume anything. So let's look once again here at um, uh, Revelation 13. Now in Revelation 13, here's where we now have a blend of some things. We clearly have something that is intended to be uh, an, um, symbolic of something in the early verses of chapter 13, but then we also have in the chapter some very clear description of some actual, real, plain description of things. So let me go ahead and read starting in verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. And so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months, a very specific period of time. Uh, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy to God and blasphemed his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who uh, leads into captivity goes on. And then we see another beast in verses 11 through 18 in that, where we see the mark of the beast, this abomination of desolation. It's not called that in Revelation 13, but we here see this statue set up uh, to drive the world to worship the beast and that kind of thing. It is clearly intended to be seen as what Daniel is describing, what Jesus is describing, uh, and, and even in connection with what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2. And so... Um, so in Revelation 13, the opening verses, we see something that is clearly symbolic, right? We do know that this is imagery. We don't just know it because it says it in verse 13 and it sounds like imagery. We know it because in Daniel chapter 7, this same imagery appears and it's explained to Daniel what it means. And in short, it speaks about a number of kingdoms that come together that ultimately fall behind one particular leader who rises up and who stands at the helm of this global community who one day tries to stand against the Ancient of Days when he comes to establish his kingdom. So I would encourage you to read Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 
to uh, sort of together, read them, you know, in the same sitting and see how this actually finds its explanation earlier in the scripture. What we see in Revelation 13 is explained earlier in Daniel chapter 7. And so even though there is imagery there, there is something symbolic going on there, we understand what the symbols mean. And so when we see it in Revelation 13, oh, this is what Daniel was talking about. Now John is seeing it in his vision, and this is what it means. And it's the explanation I just gave you. Now, you'll notice it it sort of moves from this imagery into a description of events taking place. Uh, This one that rises up, that becomes sort of the head of these uh, nations, is mortally wounded. In other words, he's killed. But he rises from the dead in this sort of... um, mockery of the resurrection of Christ, but it's this deceptive resurrection that causes the world to worship him and say, who is like him? And then it goes on to describe them following him in that. And then we go on to see again the false prophet and uh, the image, the mark of the beast, and all this kind of thing. Well, this is, again, also in connection with what Paul talked about when this man of perdition, the son of perdition, this man of sin, goes into the temple of God and declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped above all that is called God. We see that expanded upon here in Revelation 13. So again, is there anything in these passages that would lead us to believe that this is intended to be taken as being just spiritually understood? Well, there are those that that approach prophecy with a very, you know, uh, particularly where they, they view prophecy as being allegorical, as being symbolic in nature. And therefore, we have to sort of figure out what all these symbols mean, but we ought not really see it as being like literal history being told to us in advance. Um, and there are reasons why that perspective is espoused, and it generally falls under the heading of like an amillennial perspective um, and that kind of thing. I don't agree with that. I don't subscribe to that. I'm not saying that those who hold that view are not believers, that they don't love the Word of God, and they don't take a good faith effort in understanding the Word of God. It's just that I think that whereas they might be uh, solid in taking the rest of the Scripture plainly and 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 seeing you know uh, what it says and all that, when it comes to um, apocalyptic literature or things having to do with, with end times prophecy, there does seem to be a departing from a consistent hermeneutic, and now we have a different apparatus for interpreting all this. I just don't agree with that. And I, I think that the Bible makes much less sense in its totality when you do that. I think it falls into place not not completely neatly. It's not like there are no questions that are still difficult to answer, but by and large, things all seem to fit when you let these passages simply tell you what they tell you. Um, And so uh, I think in the same way that prophecies that told of Christ's first coming should have been seen, obviously, by the Pharisees at face value, so too when it comes to a second coming, I think we would make a mistake to to not see it the same way. And so that's just my perspective on it. Um, Now, um, again, they're... Coming back to the the um, um, you know the idea of our being the temple of God in that, <clears throat> in one sense that is obviously true. Uh, the, in 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 the same way that God dwelt in the tabernacle or above the tabernacle, and and one day in the holy of holies uh, during that period, and then during the first temple period. Um, in the same way that he literally dwelt in that place, he does now literally dwell within believers. We are now the sanctuary. Again, we we actually delved into this um, uh, at some length yesterday, last night, if you want to watch our study in Zechariah. Uh, I apologize in advance. There's a few cutouts of the sound during the early part worship and, and some of the earliest part of the study. But later on in the study, we began to uh, talk about this idea of, of God dwelling in us uh, and, and just the magnitude of such a thought, right? And so 
we are the temple of God today. I mean, we we are that, but that does not, and here's where I think the either or proposition that we bring to bear on this needs to be set aside. Um, because both of these realities can be true at the same time. The fact that we are, in fact, the temple of God, um, but yet at the same time, the fact that there will be a literal temple built during the time of Antichrist. Now, the temple that's built during the time of Antichrist will be built by the Jews, and it will be a place where they offer sacrifices again, but it is not the temple of God. It, in their minds, they're building it to God, but even as we see today, they're not just building it to their own God, they want it to be a temple for the world. But even if it were just a temple that they thought was they were building solely for the God of Israel, it, it's going to be a temple built as an abomination because they have rejected the Lamb of God that God himself has provided um, for their um, cleansing, you know, for their ultimate full cleansing, right? I mean, uh, Christ has come and is finished and as as the... Um, as as what all of the sacrifices pointed to, they're rejecting that. And so this is not a temple that, in fact, does honor God. It becomes rather instead an abomination that becomes fully abominized, if I can invent a word for a second. Um, abominized. Is that a word? It probably should be a word. But anyway, so the Antichrist goes in and abominizes this place fully by calling himself God. This, this, this uh, image is built and the world is called to worship him and all this kind of thing. So I don't. Um, I think even on that level, there's not a, a violating of the fact that these two ideas can be true at the same time. I think that um, um, it's completely uh, biblical that you can certainly rightly subscribe to the idea that we are the temple of God today as believers. Um, and actually, someone else commented too about the Lord cleaning up this temple. Yeah, we we do want Him to constantly on a practical level uh, sanctifies further and further. But positionally speaking, we are sanctified. We are in Christ. If you're a born-again believer, you are right before God, even though your life still needs some cleaning up and that kind of thing. But that is one thing, but the temple that will be built eschatologically, having to do with the last days, is also a very real, I think, very little reality that, uh, that those on the earth at that time will see. So uh, a great, great comment and, and question, um, and, uh, and one I thought worthy of taking a few minutes on a post to, to address. And so uh, my encouragement would be to go ahead and continue to read on these two concepts. Read all those passages that refer to the idea of what we now are in Christ as the, that holy habitation, that, that holy place being built up to the Lord. But at the same time, reading the passages that have to do with the last days and how this temple that will be built in those days, I believe, literally, um, how that fits into the overall scope of last things. Uh, and I, I think you'll find that there's really no contradiction between those two ideas at all. In fact, uh, both both are true at the same time. So um, anyway, so there you go. That's uh, that's how I would uh, uh, I would speak to that. And so hopefully you find that helpful. And uh, if you have any questions or comments about that, or really anything else that you uh, you want to share, you can always comment on our YouTube channel below the video that you're watching, uh, or any of the videos that you might be watching. And then um, you can also email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And I haven't mentioned this in a while, but if you happen to be uh, coming through Middle Tennessee and you're driving through Franklin and you want to see us on a Sunday morning, we'd love to see you as well. So why don't you join us for a service or, um, you know, it'd be nice to meet you. So God bless you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And um, yeah, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you and give you peace. 
forever. Father, we do thank you for the hope that you've built within us in the knowledge that one day we'll be with you in presence. We thank you, Lord, that you're with us. There's never a time when we're somewhere that you're not. Um, But Father, we thank you that one day we'll leave these uh, falling apart bodies behind and we will fully realize the fullness of redemption that you have uh, saved us too. And we thank you that while we know that we are the temple of God right now, we uh, look forward to seeing you unfold your purposes and plans here on earth uh, in regard to bringing about an end to man's dominion and ruining and destruction and and all of the wickedness and evil of this world and one day establishing your kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem with a rod of iron, where all the wrongs will be made right, where sin will not be allowed to, uh, will not be allowed to fester, but instead we'll see this world as you would desire it to be and have desired it to be. So we just live in great hope of seeing Christ come, our bridegroom, coming to snatch us away, and we so look forward to coming back with him when he comes to establish his kingdom. Lord, truly, may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Father. We love you and thank you for this opportunity to consider these things, and we pray that we would grow continually in our love for your word and in our reliance on the Holy Spirit um, to uh, help us uh, understand it and make our way through it. So thank you, Father. Be glorified in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.